This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, friends, and welcome to Series 5, Episode 3 of John Richardson and the Future Notes. It's myself, John Richardson, and the Future Notes, Ed Gillespie. Hello! And Mark Stevenson. Hello. Oh, that was gruff. I liked that. Oh, thank you. Ed's done enough <laughs> Googling of hello in foreign languages, clearly. Series 5. He said, let's, <laughs> let's focus on the native speakers. And I appreciate that. How have you both been? How have you been, Ed? I've been very good. I actually took your advice, John. Oh, shit. <laughs> I know, I know. Reckless. I can't remember what the advice was. That's always worrying. I took your advice and I texted everyone in my address book and told them to fuck <laughs> off and leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was I was doing the school run on the bike the other day, and as we were discussing, you know, there was ah. cars parked outside mm-hmm. the school idling. I pulled up right behind one, so you know, essentially, I'm on the bike with my daughter, basically with my face very close to the exhaust. So I very very cheerfully, you know, got Claire off the bike, wandered around, and just knocked on the window, uh, and the woman sort of wound it down. And I said you know, excuse me, you wouldn't mind turning the engine off, would you, while you're just out the front here? And she looked at me and she went, why? (laughs) (laughs) This is an opportunity. Sales speak tells us that any question is a desire to learn more. Well, exactly, exactly. So I just, I politely explained um, and she she did comply, but um, I would, I think it's fair to say she didn't look best pleased um, at my intervention. And then I was talking to a friend who has a similar thing at their school up in Yorkshire, uh, where she said it's like parking is crazy and everyone stops on the road and, you know, and it's really haphazard as well as everyone chugging away. And she complained to the school and the school basically sort of washed their hands of it and said look we've tried it we've had teachers on the gate you know asking parents not to do that and the school said apparently on one occasion a parent got out of the car with a chainsaw to threaten to threaten and it's like a chainsaw i mean this is obviously ridiculous overkill but maybe this is what um Richie Sunak is trying to tap into as a nation of drivers. Um, by any means necessary, we will park up haphazardly outside the school with the engines running, with the chainsaw in reserve, just in case. Petrol power chainsaw or battery? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What does he um, fucking mean, a nation of drivers? Of course, I don't a nation know. of drivers. I'm also a nation of people who eat breakfast. Yeah, exactly. A nation of humans, nation of people who live in dwellings. What's, what's it? Yeah. <laughs> you can't define people saying, oh, we're a nation of drivers. Like saying, you know, we're a nation of people who walk under the sky. Idiot. My yeah. wife would be very keen to be part of the group that are not drivers. 
we have frequent discussions in our house about how I choose to drive and operate a car and I am therefore responsible for those emissions, whereas she as a passenger is not a driver and therefore has a lower carbon footprint than me, even though she's sat next (laughs) to me in the car and the reason for a great many of the journeys that happen in that car. And we have, as you would say, Ed, a, a lovely chat about it. I take her interventions as a chance to have a full and frank conversation I enjoyed your use of she complied. That was very RoboCop. <laughs> she had 20 <laughs> seconds to comply. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I see your chainsaw and I raise you a futuristic death robot. I'm excited. If we start with Ed confronting someone, uh, Mark, you are you are very much uh, gear number five in terms of what you deem insultancy. Have you had any uh, beef with anyone this week? Uh, no, no, I've not. You haven't been far, but... escorted from any premises of power or into. No, that's true. No, no, the last, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, um, I haven't. But I am, I am off um, later this week uh, to go and sit in a room with what, what I've been told is the people who manage the money for fifty of the ultra wealthiest families in the entire world to give them a hard time about climate and social action. So, so that will be an interesting gig. How much if they all got together and said, "Look." How much for you to just leave us alone and join us? What what's what's your price? Uh, I am unbuyable. Fifty million? Couldn't <laughs> touch me. No way. Hundred million? No. Nope. This is back to like the Saudi <laughs> question, isn't it? Because yeah. after after I mentioned that on the podcast last week, they then kicked off a whole discussion on one of the sustainability WhatsApp groups I was on about you know whether you would take the Saudi dollar. Mm. And incidentally, it's almost five years to the day since poor Jamal Khashoggi got a bone sword to pieces in Turkey, and it was really interesting the responses. I mean, you know, there's a lot of self justification and defensiveness going on. I think from people who have taken those those big dollars, you know, like the Middle East is changing, and we need progressive voices out there, and this is a life changing amount of money for people, um, so they they should accept it, or you know, almost the rationale of taking money off the bad guys to go and do good things with it. So uh, yeah, I felt a bit isolated actually in my sort of principled position <laughs> because lots of people were saying I'd do it. I mean, I think it depends who you are, right? You know, there yeah. there are. There are there is validity to some of those arguments, and indeed, sometimes you know, you have to take money from places where it's not particularly um, nice and put it to put it to good use. Um, yeah. But it depends whether you're actually doing that or whether you're saying you're doing that as your justification. So I, I think it would it would it would be a case by case basis. Let's think, for instance, say James Thornton, uh, CXEO of Client Earth was asked to go out there and speak about climate law and whatever and was paid a fortune, would we would we criticise him for doing that or would we think that's a good thing? Similarly, if Russell Brand did it, would we think it's a good thing or a bad thing? You yeah. could do it and not take the money. Where, where would you stand on that? If you said, I'm going to come and talk to you because I believe you need to hear what I'm going to say, but I don't want your money because I don't want you thinking that you've bought my opinion. Yeah, or you're going to mm-hmm. donate the money. I mean, and let's be clear, it's really big money. I mean, um, someone then told me confidentially that, you know, they'd been offered a a sustainability director role that was 400 grand a year. You know, it was like, it's it's serious money that is being thrown around for this stuff. Mm. And uh, I do believe, you know, it's a bit like the sports wash. It's a bit of an ethics wash going on. Mm. 
Yeah, I do. I mean, obviously, um, we're all mad football fans on this podcast. Um, I think you, <laughs> you two do a better job of not talking about it on the podcast, but I know you're both very passionate Millwall fans. Um, you're down the den every week, aren't you? No but, one likes um, us. We don't care. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's the <laughs> motto for your insultancy, isn't it? Um, but I, I do wish... I wish some footballers had gone first. I do think it does make it easier for those whose jobs are relevant to the future to say, well, do you know what? If Jordan Henderson isn't going to Saudi Arabia, if footballers had just made a stand and said, look, we're not doing it, so you Mm -hmm. definitely shouldn't, you know, but sadly that doesn't seem to have happened anywhere. Mm. No. I mean, you know, it was the isolation of South Africa that helped to, to a small degree to to end apartheid. Well, not that it's ended, but, you know, to end the, the, the policy of it. The difference there is that South Africa was quite poor in relation to mm. Saudi Arabia. So they, they, they can kind of front it out with with an awful lot of cash. So it's a very, it's a different, it's a different proposition. Uh, um, but next week we will have uh, Mohammed bin Salam on the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any concern you know when you said um i'm i'm going to meet the 50 i'm going to be in a room with the 50 wealthiest families in the world i sound a little bit like james bond saying i'm going to meet 50 super villains uh and they, they've invited me over to have a, a full and frank discussion about how they can uh, be less megalomaniacal mm. are you worried that they're they're gonna kidnap you and um yeah he's not coming back is he yeah, he's not coming uh, back. No, I think I think this is you know Ed and I's rather privileged position that, that, that with insultancy. What I've tended to find with the very wealthy and the very powerful is if you talk to them straight and you don't care that much about their wealth and their power because you're on the side of the science and the ethics, and mm. um, you actually get um, a, a lot more um, traction. And the thing is, out of those fifty, I only need one or two. You know, so I'm, I'm, I, you know, remember I think Kate Rayworth told us on when we interviewed her, and it's something I've taken to heart: never push at a closed door. So mm. I'll go and see which doors are ajar, and then I'll walk through those, and then take, and then you know the others will follow. So that's that's my my policy. But no, I don't get. It's good. I mean, I've often thought this. I mean, you must think this is having done stand up, John. But you know, when when I'm sat with somebody very powerful or or wealthy, I think, well, I've tried to explain quantum theory via stand-up to a bunch of drunk plumbers in a comedy club in Leicester <laughs> on a Tuesday night. You know, nothing scares me. Really. <laughs> well, you bring us beautifully onto this week's topic. We're having a special look at a topic this week and having beautifully described how comfortable you are speaking frankly to people and expressing ideas that people might find uncomfortable, but that happens to be a skill set that you excelling we're here to talk this week about uh, adhd aren't we we have uh, some emails and i think we have some uh, messages that have been sent in on on uh, last week's podcast as well so we'll get to those at the end but we have a special guest with us she's not quite here yet mark would you like to introduce this week's topic well yes well it's, it is the world's worst named condition it may not even be a condition and we'll get on to that attention Deficit hyperactivity disorder. I could argue with every single one of those words, but we'll get into that. But it is the condition du jour, is it not? Pretty much everybody seems to have it at the moment or is, is announcing it. You can't move for some celebrity or other talking about it. Adrian Charles, Rory Bremner, Rod Gilbert, uh, to name three. And some people have even written celebrity memoirs about having ADHD, including our wonderful guest, Shaparik Korsandi, 
who has just published Scatterbrain, how I finally got off the ADHD roller coaster and became the owner of a very tidy sock drawer, which I found a very entertaining uh, read. And I know you boys have both read it as well, haven't you? Yeah, and I've seen your sock drawer. Have you seen his sock drawer? <laughs> no, I, I've never seen his sock drawer. What that makes me feel is like when you come and stay with me and I go out, <laughs> you go into my room and start looking through my drawers. That's the only way you could have seen my sock drawer. I'm going to tweet a photo of Mark's sock drawer for the benefit of listeners. Yes. I think that would be an interesting thing to do on our social media accounts. I think people would be surprised to see the state that my sock drawer is in. It's not even a drawer, it's a shelf. And I'll tell you what, it's a fucking nightmare at the minute. It's an absolute mess. All unpaired. They're absolutely all unpaired. But what I do, I buy very distinct socks so that when I am pairing them, it's easier. Someone once said, oh, you should get just black socks and then when you pair them. But it's not doesn't work like that because every black sock is slightly different and if you have a certain kind of mind i can't wear two different black socks there might be a different length it might be a different material they even if you buy the same set of socks they deteriorate at a different rate and mm. some might have shrunk mm. a little bit more than others and you know they still have to be paired properly in the big tent of neurodiversity john ocd is also welcome well, yeah, uh, Shoprak mentions it quite a few times in her book. And uh, if I have an interjection, it will be on because I think OCD perhaps had its moment around the time I made my documentary about it. And there are there are certainly some similarities in my documentary. It's called A Little Bit OCD. And I dare say we're sort of getting to the point where you'll start hearing people say I'm a little bit ADD. Mm. <laughs> Do you think that's fair? Well, I mean, you know, one of the things we'll get onto is how, how modern society and it kind of is designed to make us all a little bit that way and why that's, you know, a problem for various reasons. But I mean, when I first met you, Mark, you'd have dismissed ADHD, wouldn't you? You'd have, you'd have said that it didn't exist. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. When my lovely therapist, the wonderful Sophie, suggested, uh, I think about three or four sessions in, I might have ADHD. So do you think you might have ADHD? I said something along the lines of, no. Isn't that the thing annoying people use to medicalise the fact that they're basically twats? <laughs> <laughs> so that tells you the journey I've been on, <laughs> which, which, which we'll get onto with with Shaparik. Yes, well, it leaves the the rest of us with no explanation for why we're twats. So quite no, why <laughs> no, exactly. Twat. We've got no defence. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's get to uh, Shaparik now. So I'm delighted to say that with us now is the esteemed author friend, colleague, someone I've toured with. It's Shappy Corsandi. Welcome to the Future Noughts podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here because I listened to this podcast and it's very informative. <laughs> well, you are now part of the information overload. So I, I don't know what, what facts you've got standing by, qualifications you want to talk about. Well, I did start my psychotherapy master's this weekend Wow. And how many other masters did you start this weekend? <laughs> I'm doing carpentry, I'm doing window glazing, and I'm doing further maths. Wow. Excellent. What's module one on psychotherapy? It's sitting around in a room and tearing each other to shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll do that. That sounds great. So it's like a roast? Yeah, you sort of, it was a little bit like. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> Less money, but you pay them. Yeah, right. it, was, it was really interesting. That's interesting because in your book, 
scatterbrain you described being on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here as one of literally the worst experiences of your entire life. <laughs> yeah. And now I've gone back into a similar situation without lots of people watching. No, it was. It was quite a head trip, I have to say. I wonder what it would be if it would have been a very different experience had I known I have ADHD and if I'd had my ADHD pill every day in there because I would have dealt with my anxiety. I'm very different these days than I was in those days. Mm. Was it a supportive environment in the sense that, do you think, had you had this conversation, they would have been invested in wanting you to do better and be well? Or was there a sense that the struggle was part of what made you an appealing guest? No, I don't think... I think what made them a, me an appealing guest initially to them was they thought I'd be quite argumentative mm-hmm. and a bit of a sleigh queen, as my daughter might say. But I'm actually really quiet around loud people. I sort of just go, I don't fight for airtime. Mm. Yes, it's tricky, isn't it, when I think people really struggle to get their heads around. And I think it's one of the really interesting bits of your book is – the idea that you can be a shy comedian and that you can be very comfortable on stage. And you talk a lot in the book. The book is Scatterbrain, by the way. The reviews are phenomenal. And, I, you know, when you click on the review, the, the top one is five star and it just says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, which... Oh, wow. I don't know. I haven't read anything about it. I stay away from things like that, but that's really lovely to hear. Well, it, it, it's worth a look because the, the book is obviously about adult diagnosis of ADHD and, and the effect that has on, you know, looking back over your life and wondering, you know, what is as a result of that and what is as a result of growing up in a world that never understood you or told you what you were capable of. But you talk about stand-up as a skill that actually you're supremely comfortable in an environment that changes at the drop of a pin. You tell an incredible story about dying at Belfast Empire, which I think every comic will certainly resonate with. But I don't think many people die at the Belfast Empire and then walk into the bar in the interval and drink with the audience. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely supreme. But are you meeting people who are saying to you, I've read your book and it meant a lot? Because uh, as Mark discussed in our sort of introduction, ADHD to to use a not very comfortable phrase, but it's it's sort of having its moments and there's a lot of people talking about it. Are people coming up to you and talking about the book? Absolutely. So it's the reason I wrote the book was because it was so strange to say out loud that I have ADHD and to get some answers. And so when I said it out loud, like I think I went on Twitter or something that I was diagnosed and I, I expected a few people to be like, oh, everyone's got something. But that didn't happen at all. I was absolutely inundated uh, with people wanting to ask me questions and telling me stuff about ADHD. And it was mind-blowing. And the most unlikely people, I met a man on the Isle of Wight who came up to me and he said, I just want to tell you that um, my daughter says that you've changed her life. She read your book. I always thought she was like that because I'm like that. But she reckons she's got ADHD and I just wanted to let you know. And I was like, that is so amazing. And I mm. said, how old is she? And he said, she's 35 and she's read your book. And it resonated with her and she doesn't feel like she's a, a weirdo on her own. And I thought, how brilliant. How brilliant to get that at 35, you know. I think the younger you know, obviously, mm. the more you can support yourself. Oh, fuck. 
<laughs> so let me introduce Mark, who is on his own journey. Um, and when were you uh, diagnosed formally, Mark? April. So I'm 52. So there you go. Yeah. And yes, there is a like, oh, well, if only I'd known this 20, 30 years earlier, mm. how much better and might, might things have been. I imagine perhaps that is a period that you'll go through. Mm. Um, do you mind if I ask a really personal question and you don't have to answer it, but are you getting therapy around dealing with your late diagnosis? Uh, yes, yes. and uh, But also, you know, I've got ADHD, so I've done a whole bunch of study which will form the notes of this podcast, which I noticed that neither of my co-presenters, even though I've provided them with copious notes and questions to ask, have paid any fucking attention to so far in this recording. <laughs> I have read feels to me like you're trolling me around my ADHD. Like I've done all I've done all the work and now you're just like we're not going to pay any attention to that. It's like meta ADHD this podcast. <laughs> so I get therapy here as well because people are just generally sort of rude to me, uh, which I like. Shappy, I, I, I was going to ask you, did you always believe that ADHD existed because Mark sort of confessed earlier that you know when he was first diagnosed he pretty much said to his therapist isn't that the thing annoying people use to medicalize the fact that they're basically twats um and he's obviously been forced or compelled or inspired now to 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 own that diagnosis and as you say go into therapy but were, were you always respectful of it or do were you historically disrespectful what I thought about ADHD was it applied to boys. Right. Because I used to hear it around that, and I absolutely diagnosed my brother with it for years. <laughs> I was like, you've got ADHD. I've been reading about ADHD. It's you, it's you, it's you. You can't get eye contact, all of that. And I read, I say I read a book. I bought a book called Driven to Distraction, which one day I shall read. But I've read bits and pieces of it, and I used to always go on to him that he's got ADHD. But what I didn't know was how traits that I have that were under the umbrella of ADHD, like binge drinking, mm. um, compulsive overeating, not being able to regulate my emotions, so emotionally behaving inappropriately, crying inappropriately, like and, and being hypersensitive to rejection. Now, no one likes rejection, but the sort of rejection I'm talking about is like, if, if someone that's normally friendly to me didn't give me a warm hello in the coffee shop, I might absolutely, that would ruin my week. What have I done? And then you go, it's because I'm paranoid. Oh, because I'm paranoid because I've got low self-esteem. And those ruminations, mm. I didn't know were my brain chemicals. I didn't know that your brain can't let any other thoughts in right now. Mm. I kept thinking that I could fix this myself it was a failing on my part it was a personality defect and it's not ADHD itself that damages your mental health it's it's not knowing you have it so all of these things you start to really it, they build up in you I'd hear people talk about anxiety and I'd never attribute it to myself I never understood that I carried anxiety until I got my diagnosis and I began to become free of it through therapy. And I always go to that expression, I, I didn't know I had anxiety in the, in the same way a dog doesn't know it's a dog. <laughs> I'm feeling really anxious and, and someone's got lots of anxiety. I'm like, oh, have they? 
And the whole time, my insides were just ripping themselves apart, you Mm. know. I can't remember your original question. And I didn't take my ADHD pill today. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a good point. I'm going to use these. I've got some incredibly well-researched notes. (laughs) um, It it feels like someone that's really intimately connected with the issue has pulled them together. So I'm going to draw on this brilliance for my next question, which is, you know, obviously – you know, we've now got loads of evidence, loads of proof that ADHD exists, you know, that ADHD brains work differently, i.e. they use different parts of the brain to solve problems, they have a different chemical mix, and, you know, we'll probably get on to talking about the role of dopamine in all of this, and also that they're, they're physically different, that people have brains that are slightly smaller. But are you taking medication, Shappy? Do you, as well as the therapy and studying psychotherapy, are you doing the meds? Yes, although I will say studying psychotherapy isn't one of the t- necessarily one of the tools for <laughs> ADHD. Above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, so I do take um, medication for it, but I'm very, I'm very careful to talk about medication because, for a start, I'm not qualified, and secondly, I get so many people writing to me asking me who my psychotherapist and my, my psychiatrist was and telling me about how long the waiting lists are. And I completely understand those things are frustrating. But it I was diagnosed for eight months before I even thought about going to psychiatrist to get medication. I worked with my psychotherapist and together we decided, okay, now's a good time to go and explore that because there are so many other ways you can help yourself and support yourself. For me, the medication, what it takes away from me is the urge to overeat and booze. And it helps with my addictive side. Mm. And that is such a massive change in my life that that's made because I was, you know, I, I was bulimic forever for, you know, since I was 15, 16. And now I don't have that compulsion. But if I don't take my tablet, I do notice that I'm putting I'm just putting stuff in my mouth all the time. But it wakes up, to just to get very scientific, it wakes up the sleepy part of my brain, mm. organizes the rest of my brain. I don't know if I put that in too common. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did the drugs work for you, Mark? Yes. I mean, uh, and one of the reasons that we know ADHD exists, besides the actual sort of brain scans now, is that the drugs, to disagree with the verb, um, the drugs do indeed work. And and that's been borne out by a whole bunch of meta-analyses and systemic reviews of the science. So if if it didn't exist, the drugs wouldn't work any better than the placebo. So the fact that they do and they work often very well for lots of people proves that this, this is a very real physical condition in the brain as well. So, um, yeah. I do take them, but I, 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 to, to Shafi's point, I, I'm, I, I think I, I, I won't be at some point because there are other, many other things you can do, including mm. exercise and eating better and sleeping better and all that kind of stuff. But we'll, we shall get onto that later, I think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, it might be worth, because I think we're, we're all talking about it, but 
for a lot, lot of people who don't have ADHD, they might go, well, what does it mean for mm. how the mind works? So it might be worth sort of diving into that. And, and I guess the way I've had it explained to me is that basically it's kind of an, an executive function problem. And you might go, what are executive functions? What are executive functions? Thank you. Um, I would say the executive <laughs> is basically, basically the skills you learn that turn you from being a, a child into an adult, essentially. So, so rather than sort of being stuck in the mercurial emotions and attentions of a child, um, you learn, if you're a normal person, over the years to do things like manage your time, regulate your impulses so you don't insist on every suite in the shop. You know, you, you can focus your attention even if you find something boring. You know, you can get your admin done. You know, all the things that children find hard. You know, you can remember instructions. You can keep something in your head for more than four seconds. And you can, uh, as said, regulate your emotions. These are all the sort of executive skills that as an adult you would expect to have and you, and you learn that. And indeed, that, as a parent, that's what you're trying to teach your children as they grow up. But, but in the ADHD brain, that doesn't happen so well. A lot of those executive functions are incredibly hampered because of the, the neurology. Does that chime with what you you write a lot about the motor, Shappy, in the book? Does that chime with you? What Mark's just described. Yeah, you've described it so brilliantly and accurately, and I really like the comparison with child because when it really kicked in, and for me and lots of people, is from the transition from primary school to secondary school. That's when myself and a lot of people with undiagnosed ADHD noticed that they started to unravel. And that's also the time where people attribute it to, you know, puberty and, you know, a big change, a new school. So it's easy to miss it. But the reason that you are not able to navigate that if you have ADHD is exactly that because of these executive functions. And, oh, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard to explain to people who don't understand but even if people don't have ADHD I think when they hear these explanations it can make sense to them when they look at other people in their lives mm-hmm. people they work with or family members and and stuff you can go okay so you're not deliberately being an annoying dickhead this might be I had a boyfriend years ago that he would start getting ready to leave the house at the time that we were meant to leave the house. Like he would start getting ready, like like pajamas, shower, <laughs> everything. Like he would, and I, it used to drive me crazy. And now I look back on it and I feel bad that I was so frustrated with him because I just thought, you don't care. You're not, in, you know, what, you know, you're just, you like to see me in a flat. Because then I would then go the other way and I'd go, high anxiety, tantrum, I'll let go without you. And now I think, <laughs> You know, people, some people can't do what other people seem to find really easy. Mm. And it's no one's deliberately trying to ruin your life with their lack of organisation or, yeah. or timekeeping. I've found that there's a, there's a few analogies that I've sort of landed upon that I think help people understand what's going on. Um, I was going to ask, are, are there some good analogies, Mark, that you might be able to share with us I was wondering uh, in, that. in order to help us understand? Oh, well, actually, strangely enough, uh, there's three that <laughs> <laughs> very neatly laid out in this document that I wrote at the very last minute. Um, so the first, <laughs> the first analogy, the first two are kind of linked. I, I, one analogy I use is kind of like a bandwidth problem. So, so if you imagine that your cerebral cortex, that's the crinkly bit, you know, on, on the top of your brain, that's where all your executive functions reside. And imagine between that bit, which is the thinking rational bit, and the rest of your brain, there's this kind of data highway. Now, in most people, that highway would be like a well-functioning dual carriageway, but 
in ADHD, because of the dopamine and neurotransmitter deficit, it's basically like a one-track dirt road. And that that's why they give us stimulants, basically, the, the, the drugs, because that tries to send more stuff up and down that road to make up for that lack of bandwidth. And, and that leads on to the second analogy, which comes from a wonderful researcher called Dr. Russell Barkley. He's kind of like the, the godfather of ADHD research. And he made this observation that really w- what's happening is that the communication between the knowing bit of your brain, the rational bit of your brain, and the doing bit of your brain isn't very strong. So you'll think like, well, I know I should do this thing over here, but my impulse control is hampered. My message simply isn't getting through. So, so I'm not going to do it. I know that my train is in 10 minutes and it's an eight minute walk to the station, but I can write a novel before I set off, surely, because you know, why not? You know, uh, I know I should stop hyper-focusing on this thing over here because this boring thing over here needs my attention, but I'm sorry, there's just no room for that message to get through either. So, oh, did I tell you about the thing I was c- concentrating on? I know I should probably not let this emotion completely overwhelm me, but it's got onto that dirt track. There's no room for anything else. And so I'm going to cry or lose my shizzle, whether it's appropriate or not. And in fact, Chappie, you start your your book with a, an example of your brain sort of uh, architecture being overwhelmed by an emotion and, and totally losing it with your with your kids, which is something I've, I've also done and, 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 and I've reflected upon. Yeah, I mean, that's that part of it is so painful um, to go back and look at because, you know, you really see how much it affects those around you and people who, poor things, forced to love you. And also, I don't know, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book, but when I was on tour with John all those years ago, and I was going through a divorce, which of course is a really horrible, difficult thing, but I, I that on that tour, because I had no idea how to manage my brain or that my brain even needed managing, I didn't write a show really and I would just go out on the stage and do something or other and and then afterwards John would always be writing show notes and I would look at him exactly as I used to look at my friends at school who did their homework when it was meant to be done I'd go I know that's what I should be doing but I can't do that because I'm a scribble I'm Mm -hmm. just a ball of scribble just rolling around with no direction and hoping for the best and if I had known I had ADHD if I knew that I needed the support of a therapist and perhaps you know all all the tools I have now to to get my dual carriageway working efficiently that whole period of my life would have been a lot more peaceful to navigate Mm. Well, peace is the thing, isn't it? Because you yeah. can't relax. That's the thing. You know, uh, the, 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 the guy who wrote that book you talked about, Dream to Distraction, Dr. Ed Halliwell, says ADHD is like having a Ferrari engine for a brain, yeah. but you've got bicycles brakes, which really resonates with me. The other thing he says, though, is if you strengthen those brakes, then you have a champion. And I, I feel that, that that Ferrari is real. In fact, uh, when you went through your assessment, as, as did I, one of the questions they ask is a standard question there. They say, how often do you feel overly active and compelled to do things like you were driven by a motor? Yeah. And you cannot relax. You just can't. Your mind is never at rest. And that's that's one of the reasons you're constantly chasing dopamine. Yeah. So putting yourself into those situations where you walk out on stage where having not written a show in front of hundreds of people. Because when you get enough of that dopamine or that stimulus, I think it's not really like – it's not. it doesn't calm you down, but and it's not rest, but it is a satisfaction of some sort that starts to sort of even you out. Because for us, boredom is like kryptonite. 
Like, it's you know, intolerable. It's yeah. it's, it's <laughs> truly intolerable. And, and that's the thing sometimes it's hard to explain to people because no one likes being bored. Yeah. It's not about not liking it. Like I, if I'm stuck in a situation and I'm bored and I can't leave, I, I stick my nails into my arm I, to just to feel something, to feel a sensation. Yeah. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like comedy for me now, after all of these years, has become – a craft, something that I really work on, I really think about because I'm able to. Whereas for my career up until, you know, four years ago, it was it was like jumping out of an aeroplane each time. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of constantly seeking the the, the dopamine. Yeah, stuff. and with no preparation. No. <laughs> Which is well it has to be said, is reckless but also hugely courageous. <laughs> well it it's courageous is is an interesting word because it's not consciously being courageous i I actually think it's been courageous to get support and the only reason i ended up getting support was for my kids in lockdown i thought i'm shouting that's against my values that's not a personality trait so i've got to not be locked up in a house with two children and shouting at them because I'm the adult and I'm their caregiver and I've got to not make them feel unsafe. And within about a month or two of therapy, both of them individually said to me, you never shout anymore. Mm. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry I ever did. Lockdown flushed this out a lot, didn't it? Yeah. I think because people were forced into situations where they didn't necessarily have their coping mechanisms around them. And their army, like I had an army of people helping me, like my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, my, my neighbours were always in and out of my house. And so my children had, you know, a, a nest of wonderful carers. And when it was just me, I thought, oh, I am not a, I'm not a monkey. I, I have, I'm a human being and I have the, uh, the intelligence to go and fix this. Now, that's the other thing, you know, when you talk about that pathway to the doing and the thinking one of the really frustrating things about undiagnosed uh, adhd is people misjudging or underestimating your intelligence Mm. because i never did myself but other people did because the evidence was you haven't done well in school you haven't kept up with this conversation you haven't and it's not a mark of someone's intelligence and that's the part what I really struggled with, I felt such a great sense of loss was around my education. And I did a whole chapter called, I think, um, Geek Geek Without Portfolio. And it just feels really exciting and fun that my inner geek can come out now. And there's a big reason why I'm doing a master's is, is sort of just giving myself the education that I, I feel I should have got earlier well you, you say in the book don't you it's like it's like being taught in a foreign language you know i think you use the the an analogy around mandarin it's like you know you can the teacher can repeat the education as much as they like but it feels like they're speaking mandarin because it just doesn't go in yeah and and the confidence i have now in telling people i have adhd so if somebody gives me a verbal instruction i say to them um please excuse me that I don't absorb verbal instruction immediately. I might ask you this a few more times. And people are brilliant 
you know, they, when you explain, they don't get frustrated mm. with you. And part of my anxiety was I, I felt I constantly lived with other people being frustrated with me. Mm. Oh, she can't read a map. Oh, she told us it's this time, but it's not. It's that time. Oh, trust Shappy to send us to the wrong address. You know, <laughs> booking holidays, like, you know, booking. I booked, I once booked a hotel in the wrong city, in a different city to the one we were in. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, just recently, I ended up wandering around Rome at two o'clock in the morning with uh with my young daughter in the rain and my friend who is in her late sixties and not anyway. I like the story where you, you, you went to a gig where you had no you thought you had no audience and then so decided to go out and have a drink to celebrate and then realized your agent called you and said that you'd gone to the wrong theatre and you had three hundred people waiting for you. Yeah, I didn't have a drink to celebrate. I thought my career was over. I, I, <laughs> I, um, it was. And yet you had a sellout house waiting. <laughs> I had a sellout house and I went to the wrong theatre and there was no one there. And then I called my brother sobbing and he said, Well, I'm in Soho. Come and meet me for a drink. And we just drank and we just like, you know, they were just being really nice to me, him and his friends. And yeah, and I got a call saying, Where are you? And they were. <laughs> <laughs> Worth pointing out as well that you did cancel the other gig, so somebody turned up to their show and you cancelled it for them. <laughs> Lee Mack has never forgiven you for that. I think there's so many people in, in the world. I think this happens to all of us. When you've made a mistake and you don't know who that mistake has impacted and you don't even know that you've made that mistake, and so there are people that we don't know why they're giving us death stares. <laughs> Yeah. But there's something wonderful about this. There's a great quote by um, the American activist Audrey Lord, who said, it's not our differences that divide us. It's our inability to recognize, accept and celebrate those differences. And, you know, it's back to that point you were making, Shappi. It's about empathy. When people actually listen, when you explain, you know, uh, don't trust me to book the hotel or, you know, or turn up to the, the gig on time. Mark will tell you all about my behaviors and not turning up to gigs on time. But I think that is about an empathic point. And again, referring to these excellent notes I have here, Mark says, if you have a friend or partner with ADHD, this is a huge compliment because there is no way on earth that you can be boring as an individual because you must be unequivocally someone who is interesting and stimulating and, and hopefully, uh, by definition, empathetic. And did you find that with your nearest and dearest uh, as well, Shappy? Um, what, the empathy? Yeah. I think because... I'm not 100% sure if I'm answering this correctly. I mean, I'm going to disagree with you, Ed, here. You know, and what I'm saying is that if you've got ADHD, because boredom is kryptonite. In fact, I, my friend Anne, who has ADHD, she said, boring people, don't you just want to kill them? And I was like, yes. What, you, you, <laughs> if you're friends with someone with ADHD, then you're, you are definitely somebody who's stimulating and interesting and not boring. Oh, right. Yes. Um, empathy, though, is different. You know, I still, I have some very interesting people. I'm not, not sure they, they, they empathise with ADHD, but they're going, I don't think it's their job to really. I see like my ADHD is my responsibility. It's not yours. 100%. It's my job to manage myself yeah. and fit into mm. this world. But the interesting thing I think that why, why this is important is because ADHD isn't really a disorder. It's just a, it's a different cognitive style and it affects 5%. They buy brain scans. Mm. There are 5% of people. So that's what one in 20 people that have a brain structured this way, but the world is not really designed to accommodate that there's some evolutionary theory that suggests actually the adhd brain uh, was developed so that when you were having to 
deal with constant novelty, when you're having to deal with threats, when you were kind of nomadic hunter-gatherer cultures, those are the people that were leading stuff. And it's actually a, a very developed neurology that's designed for a specific environment, but it's not designed for today's environment where we're sitting down a lot and sat at computers and have yeah. to deal with admin and all that kind of mm. stuff. So ADHD isn't really a disorder. In fact, it's the reason that all the rest of you fuckers are alive because we saved you back <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> we were hunting bison for you guys so you could eat. And when did you last bring me a bison? Oh, there's yeah. one in the post. <laughs> Risk-taking is what we are good at, and that is a skill. And, you know, stand-up comedy is risk. And that's, mm. you know, it's no surprise that so uh, many people who are ADHD end up being self-employed in mm. some way. But I do want to go back to a couple of things you said. One is the, uh, it is our own responsibility. That said... The more we talk about it, the more our workplaces and our education places can be mindful of the different mm. needs that people have. So noise cancelling headphones are really important in my life to block out noise when I need to do something. Or yeah, I put those on when I'm speaking to John and Ed. It's like a monologue. And then the, the empathy, I find it's I'm learning to make friends – with people who aren't necessarily entertaining because I look back on my life and I would be naturally drawn to entertainers, people who took risks socially with jokes, people who performed their stories. And I mistook that sometimes for deeper friendship, which is harmful because it's not a satisfying friendship, that those aren't things, uh, components of someone who understands what friendship means. Yeah. And so as I understand my ADHD and the people that I was attracted to, I'm now far less bored by people because I can now be more still and give them space and realize that, that those quiet people that I used to write off some of them are still boring as fuck. Let's not be mealy mouth. <laughs> but a lot, a lot of people are just caves to explore. And that's a really nourishing way to connect. And also they're fascinating because they have some of those executive functions you find hard. Like I didn't realise I had extreme emotional dysregulation, which caused huge problems in my relationship because my dear partner had to walk on eggshells all the time because she didn't know how I was going to react. Now I know that. I look at other people and go like, oh my God, that person's emotionally regulating. How, the, how do you do that? What Teach me. That's amazing. How did you not get on the, I'm going to lose my shizzle bus? Because uh, uh, there's a great line in your book where you say something like, there's a line in Pretty Woman where Richard Gere says, it took me $10,000 and five years in therapy to say, I'm angry with my dad. And you say, it took me, you know, loads of money in therapy in five years to say, yeah, I'll think about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it's fascinating seeing other people emotionally regulate it's like i don't understand why you're not hurling your shoes out the door like <laughs> i'm sorry, I'm not chucking things around and now i never chuck things around uh anymore i used to throw things it's a terrible yeah. way to behave isn't it i can't believe i'm admitting it and then the effect that had on me outside of the home was i was so terrified of not being able to regulate my emotions that I would become an utter people pleaser and mm. so compliant. And that sort of gave me a, a, a someone that's quite vulnerable to being bullied because mm. I couldn't stand up for myself. And that wasn't because I was a wuss. I was always scared. But if I verbalize how you're making me feel and 
tell you off for it or try and lay a boundary. I don't trust myself not to call you a cunt. <laughs> so, sorry, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> it's, it's actually it's actually come quite late. But usually Mark would have got a few in by yeah, now. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, so I, th- I think I am now able to have difficult conversations with people without crying and without, you know, shouting. Yeah, I think that's so important because it also allows people near and close to you to have difficult conversations with you. Yes. So certainly if I look at my relationship, which is, you know, one of the reasons I ended up going to therapy is because, because, you know, things were not going well after lockdown when all my coping mechanisms were ha- having ADHD, which I didn't know I had, all disappeared and things got very bad. And, and one of the things my beloved partner said, like, you know, it was impossible to say anything to you because who knew you, how you were going to react? Because I didn't know. And so now that I can regulate my emotions, she is now able to have those, you know, difficult conversations you have to have in a relationship, for instance, which then makes it easier, which draws us closer together, not further apart. So not only can you see other people doing it, but it allows them in to say, okay, it's safe to go and talk to Shappy or Mark now because they're not going to suddenly explode on Mm. me and I don't have to withdraw and I don't have to walk on eggshells all the time. And, you know, when my family have said that to me and verbalised that and I've noticed the conversations that we're having – they're so much more meaningful and um, I've had to forgive myself for times when I haven't had that door open for people to tell me how they're feeling or how my behavior is affecting them. And it's, it's made such a seismic difference in my relationship with my dad as well, because, you know, I'm not qualified to diagnose him, but he is riddled with ADHD. (laughs) (laughs) And I've learned how to talk to him because we were always Mm. terrified of saying certain things because, you know, you didn't know how he was going to react. And in a much more smaller way, my, my children, I nearly said my parents, which is very Freudian, my, my children felt that with me and my son was really pissed off with me a little while ago, justifiably so. And he came downstairs to talk to me about it. And we talked about it and it was brilliant. And we hugged and I thought that's really good because if I normalize this kind of communication, then when they're out in the big wide world and choosing people to fall in love with, because we do choose, that's the biggest lie we're ever told, that Cinderella nonsense, because that's just all chemicals. It's not love. They will choose people that, that, they can communicate with and they can communicate their feelings with without that person getting defensive. Mm. I wanted to talk to you about your, not just your dad, but your the sort of the slightly hereditary nature of when you mentioned the guy on the Isle of Wight who said, oh, I always thought she was just like that because I was like that. Were you not tempted to say, do you want to read it? <laughs> you might be. Yeah, I did say to him, have you ever thought that you might be? And he goes, well, you know, I probably think I probably am. I possibly am. I said to him, are you self-employed? And he went, yes, I'm a gardener. And I was like, oh, what a beautiful <laughs> for someone with ADHD. You're out in nature. Nature is medicine for everyone, but especially if you have mm. ADHD. Like I am, honestly, I have been known to hug trees and I don't care mm. about trees. You're in safe company here. It's very very soothing and that whole walking barefoot on grass spending time with dogs animals it's yeah it's really important but I was always right we have to we can't leave this uh, discussion without also mentioning trauma 
Mm. Because the symptoms of ADHD are massively tied in with the symptoms of trauma. They are all, ADHD is a massive umbrella. And have you read that book, Your Body Keeps the Score? No. Okay, I really recommend it. It's on audio as well, which has been a game changer for me because I find reading nonfiction very difficult. Um, so audio books mm. have been I do if it's written by Ed Gillespie. <laughs> <laughs> Your body keeps the score. I'm just Googling now so we can properly reference uh, the book and the author because um, I'm going to download it. It's uh, Bessel van der Kolk. That's it. Brain, Mind and Body and the Healing of Trauma. Yeah, mm. that's such a brilliant book to read if you have trauma or just want to learn about it and also if you have ADHD because I have no doubt that there's a lot of inherited trauma. You know, it, it's scientifically proven to be carried in our DNA and, and, and you could see that if you've ever bred dogs. I don't know why I said that in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. We always, we, I think we've joked previously on the podcast, if you, were, if you were an alien coming down to the planet Earth and you wanted to get an insight into to humanity, you'd look at the horrendous things we've done to dogs mm. through chronic inbreeding and go, what did you do to the dogs, people? Yeah. You know, all dogs have ADHD. I think that's why I love dogs so much. I just Yeah, I love that talk in the book. <laughs> in the book and the publisher said you've talked about dogs quite a lot I said, leave it in well we i've i, I don't want to keep going back to the ocd documentary i made but a very similar thing in that the the importance of animals if you have any kind of desire to have your brain work in a more natural way mm. is is that everyone i met who had the worst cases of ocd they all had pets because there's nothing like an animal around to say mm. i don't give a shit about all that I want my tea at this time and I that's when we go for a walk and that's when we have a nap and then I'll love you forever. Yeah, um, that, that's before I had my dogs because some people think I'm mad having dogs because you, you know, I'm so busy and I travel and all this, but my dogs keep me from sinking and going into a fog. They really help. They don't keep me from it. They really bring me out of that sort of fog that you can go into with ADHD if I don't go for my run, sometimes I can feel myself sinking. But even if I don't go for my run, I have to walk the dock. So I'm mm. out in fresh air. That's why the trauma thing is also another reason why I um, I just feel that therapy is critical mm. when, you, mm. when you're diagnosed. You know, the drugs thing. I talked about this in my book. When I was at university, the only time I ever experimented with drugs was when someone found pharmaceutical speed. Blueies, we used to call them. Blue is something very different to parents now. Yeah. <laughs> Equally important. <laughs> Essential. Because, you know, that chemical part, people people find it quite strange that my, my medication for ADHD is amphetamine. Mm. But amphetamine only makes you massively hyper if you have a typical brain. Mm-hmm. But those blueies I took at university, I remember going to a party and I had a lovely time. I talked to people. I didn't feel shy. I didn't feel anxiety. Yeah. I didn't um, get hammered. I felt normal. Yeah. yeah. I, one of my oldest friends was always like quite manic as a teenager and obviously has also been diagnosed with ADHD now. But I mean, and he used to love bass speed, <laughs> you know, and, and I would be, I would be sort of horrified because of the effect it had on me, but obviously it was having a completely different effect on him because, and also when he was in the classroom at school, you know, it was like it, the, the treatment of his behavior wasn't empathetic. It was like a clip round the ear and no orange squash. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, but it's basically making up for that that dopamine deficit that we talked about, you know. And and you know, I, I just want to say I felt very profoundly sad when you talked about your dad, Shappy, because my dad obviously had undiagnosed ADHD and was misdiagnosed with depression and anxiety and all those sorts of things. And actually he had a pretty miserable time of it and our relationship was not good. And I, unfortunately he died before my diagnosis. So I don't have the ability to go back and have that conversation with him. And and I find that really, that that is one of the biggest griefs and traumas in my life for sure. Sorry, that was all a bit depressing, wasn't it? Sorry. I that's really important. I think that's a really, really beautiful thing to share with me thank you but I think staying with that sadness is important and finding ways to acknowledge that even though your dad's not around now that you are diagnosed so you can't have those conversations he was your dad and I I very rarely as a mother but as a parent I will tell you that your dad would have known you and would have known that you, you would have felt loved by you. And I don't know if you're a parent, but the one thing I I really feel is that I, I, I know, I know everything will be okay with me and my kids because underneath all the, and, and me and my dad, underneath all the shit, there is that unbreakable sort of, equator of love and that he will have known god the unbreakable equator of love sounds like a progressive rock album that i want (laughs) (laughs) can i ask both of you because the one thing i really i really felt reading the book and especially knowing you chaperone especially having done that tour together and thinking oh god there was so much going on i had no idea about as someone who saw you sporadically during that time it feels a bit like getting the diagnosis and then getting the medication and living in a world that is coming to understand it it feels a, a bit like having lived all your life in a sort of plaster cast and then it it comes off and you're able to move freely and start to look forward and say right now I understand myself now I know what I I can do and I'm capable of there's a freedom to that and and a happiness to that but coupled with that is is an essential need to then look back over all the other years and and almost against your will have to say well do you know what actually in that situation was that because of that or or had I been treated differently would I have done that thing? And and coupled with the desire to move forward is a, especially around your education, mm. how hard is it not to just be angry and just say, fuck me, if 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 I'd grown up in a world where someone at school was able to say, well, do you know what? If you let them do it like this, th- they're going to be okay rather than be told that you're scatty or not bright enough or lazy or not trying hard enough. There's a, a lust for life that takes over for me that makes me want want to move away from the anger because it was there Mm -hmm. it is there sometimes if I allow myself but I have worked really hard with my therapist to understand that this is my allotted time on earth that I don't know when it's going to end right and this is my journey right this is the way my script turned out and acceptance is everything. And when we talk about empathy and compassion, we need to give that to ourselves first. So if we really work hard on strengthening our own 
feelings of compassion towards ourselves, then we can deploy it to all the bastards that wronged us in the past, right? And that's been <laughs> that's that's a practice. That's a practice to be as as treat yourself as beautifully as you can, because when you're able to really strengthen your your self-esteem in that way and strengthen your ego in that way and heal what I've learned is called narcissistic wounds. That doesn't mean you're a narcissist. It means that you've been wounded somewhere in the past and people's actions still hurt that wound and work on those. And then you look back and you just think we're all puny little specks of carbon trying to, you know, get on with our lives. And it's the nuts and bolts of what happened become less significant, but that here and now and today becomes the only important thing. That feels like a sort of impossible point not to end on. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that was because it, it's so applicable. We haven't done No, I know. Um, there's, there's more to move on, but I'm just saying that I think in terms of every episode we've ever done in this podcast, you sort of apply that very healthily to to you know whatever else you want to talk about so i mean like returning to podcast tradition here um you know we usually stop ask just, our, our three questions exactly um and you know according again to the wonderful document underneath my nose i am going to ask you mark um how fucked are we when it comes to adhd well here's the thing so remember this that adhd affects five percent of people okay and therefore and that's somebody you know and love now, here's a really interesting quote from Dr. Russell Barkley. He says, compared to other killers from a public health standpoint, ADHD is bad. So smoking, for example, reduces your life expectancy by 2.4 years. And if you smoke more than 20 cigarettes a day, you're down six and a half years. Diabetes and obesity, that's another couple of years. Elevated blood cholesterol, that's nine months off your life. ADHD is worse than all of those put together. On average, undiagnosed ADHD will cost a person nearly 13 years of their life. And that's on top of all the other findings that show a greater risk of accidental injury and suicide. About two-thirds of people with undiagnosed ADHD will have a life expectancy reduced by up to 21 years. So if that doesn't tell you that it's important, then I don't know what will. Also, because of the emotional dysregulation, an undiagnosed ADHD couple are are twice as likely to divorce as ones uh, that know about what is going on. The crappy parenting that comes from the emotional regulation challenges which can affect your children and of course there's the other thing that's really problematic is is there's lots of misdiagnoses the, the anxiety often that people feel the depression or what people feel is actually a function of this brain chemistry it's not itself mm. the thing so if you misdiagnose somebody with depression they can spend all their life like my dad did believing he had depression when actually he had adhd so that is a absolute right roll fucking of five percent of people directly and everybody around them and the pressure of masking that comes with that as well, I guess, trying to sort of cover over um, some of the cracks. Yeah, undiagnosed, you, you, you've basically gone this dopamine hunt, and that can be good or bad. It can be bad. You can do drugs, gambling, you know, seeking conflict. Risky sexual mm. behaviours, it turns out, are more more prolific. Uh, if you've got ADHD, you're much more likely to have a kink. It turns out. Are you? Would you say you're more kinky? Well, no. I've got on, a friend called. Uh, I've got a friend called um, uh, Dr. Alex Connor, who's an expert in ADHD, and and he has ADHD. And uh, he was going on a kink podcast. He says, yeah, no, you're more likely to have a kink podcast. A kink if you've got ADHD. I was like, oh, damn, I missed out on that. He said, yeah, me too. But then he said, having a kink does seem like an awful lot of admin. And that's not good for ADHD either. <laughs> 
I mean, but you know, so there's bad ways of looking for dopamine that can be problematic. There are ways that are kind of good or bad depending on the outcome. So becoming a stand-up, you know, if you do it very badly, it destroys your self-esteem. That's not good. Skydiving, for instance, if you're bad at it, you know, it, it, it can be a bad outcome. But if you're good at it, it can become like the you know a, a, a brilliant thing. And then, and then there are really good ways of stimulating, you know. Um, the dopamine, like finding a career like stand-up comedy or a lot of creative professions which give you all that novelty, the sort of work that Ed and I do, you know. Is there a link between ADHD and prog rock? Well, yes. I mean, you know, prog rock is needlessly complex music that's played uh, <laughs> very high level. And, and, that, and that's what I, I do. Uh, to, 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 to tell you a story, actually, um, when my band did its tour at the back end of last year and we were supporting a much bigger band, much well-respected, I had to walk out on stage in front of thousands of people who had all paid to see the band after me to hear music they never heard before. And, you know, uh, I walked out on stage and I pulled on all my old stand-up skills and I fronted this band for 40 minutes in front of these people. You know, a, a situation that most people would consider absolutely nightmarish. Mm. And my beloved, she said when I came off stage, she said, you looked so comfortable in the home up there. Which was kind of like, yes, I did, because I was getting so much dopamine at that point. Mm. And, I, and then when it went well, you're getting the love from the crowd. And it was like, okay, and now I feel like a normal person. Yeah. Whereas for most of the people, that would be a nightmare. So that's, but that's a good use of that drive, right? Because I went out and entertained thousands of people. I had a great time and I was driven to, to, to do this stuff. What Mark's not telling us is that he also went to the wrong venue beforehand and cancelled someone else's gig. <laughs> he did that. I just put with the wrong band. You know, what you've just described is really interesting if you consider that without the parental scaffolding that you've had, the privileges that you, you have had, that dopamine hit might have been got from a burglary. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, there's an awful lot of people in our prisons who have ADHD. Yeah, yeah, and and a, a, a high proportion of alcoholics have it as well. Because you know, alcohol is a great calms you down and speeds you up at the same time. What I have enjoyed, though, kind of finding peace in myself, it hasn't made me um, less interested in doing stand up, but it has made me work much harder at it and, and and find so much more joy in writing it whereas before it was that it was just throw me into a lake of fire please but it's become a different thing for me now and so yeah of course I have my moments of oh for fuck's sake I wish I had this 20 years ago you know mm. but I have to you know just move on from that because I made a little speech about it earlier and I should probably stick to it. Yeah. <laughs> you can change your mind. Yeah, no, because it is. It's 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 hard. Like I, I would like, go, oh, I didn't, you know, I had so many incredible career opportunities that my brain couldn't handle. I was on um, eight out of 10 cats and I lost the thread of what we were talking about. I didn't know what anyone was talking about. I checked out. I didn't know what I, I on a TV show. <laughs> I, I checked out I started daydreaming about something else on a fucking TV show and Jimmy Carr came to me so Shabby what do you think and I wasn't I didn't know what was going on I wasn't in the room and yeah I, I can't help but look back on stuff like that sometimes and go oh you tool but yeah compassion for oneself 
But this is the thing, isn't it? This celebration of of neurodiversity, because basically, you know, it is an overarching idea that it's just the full human spectrum of experience that we all go through, isn't it? And that all of those differences are wonderful tools in the collective box, if we can harness them and be mindful of them in the right ways. Absolutely. This comes back to, you know, so if we get onto the hat, how did we get so fucked in dealing with this? And uh, I have this particular bee in my bonnet, which I think I mentioned when we were talking about this on the last podcast, which is there's this term, neurodiverse, okay, which I like because actually that was coined by Judy Singer, who is a sociologist. And, and actually in her, in her dissertation for her degree, she kind of came up with this term neurodiverse. She was asked, you know, where did you get that from? And she said, well, I kind of took it from biodiversity and that, you know, everything is, you know, there's, there's an ecology out there of minds and these things are diverse. And then some twat, mm. some absolute wanker went and invented <laughs> the term neurotypical, which suddenly meant that if you were, had ADHD or OCD or whatever, you were not normal. So neurodiverse came to mean out of the ordinary rather than part of an ecology. And I think what we're learning now is that, you know, there are 5% of people who fit into this particular niche you know, in the ecology of minds. And if we understood that, then we might, you know, think of it, 5% of people, how many millions of millions of people is that? You know, it's a, it's a huge market. It's a huge community that we've kind of decided, oh, is, you know, a, a bit odd. They're not a bit odd because they're one in 20 people that you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think, you know, getting rid of the term neurotypical would be the way that we unfuck ourselves. And if I ever anybody mm. using it, I, um, I I may have to. It is. It, it, for me, it's like um, having an, I hope we get to a place where it's like saying, have you got an innie or an outie when you're talking about <laughs> It's got to become that ordinary. I, I'm not a fan of it being called a superpower. It's my superpower. I'm just like, I don't know. I find all that uh, for me a bit unhelpful because it ha- certainly hasn't fucking felt like a superpower. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a great quote actually as we come towards the end, which has been about how do we unfuck ourselves. It, it's one getting rid of the term neurotypical, but but Ed Hallowell, who's one of the great research theorists, says, "Look, it's neither a disorder or nor is it entirely an asset. It is an array of traits specific to a unique kind of mind, and it can can become a distinct advantage or an abiding curse depending on how mm. you manage it." So you know, you're just different, and, and like with all people, if you can take your various talents and histories and whatever, and, and and play those cards well, you'll be a success. And if you can play them badly, you can be a complete fuck up. And it's the same with ADHD. But the one thing that I think really excites me is, again, Ed Halliwell saying, you know, that that you have a Ferrari brain, but but bicycle brakes. But if you train at the brakes, you do have a champion. And he says, if you've mastered your ADHD, it can bring out talents that you can neither teach nor buy. So there are things that I know that I can do that just naturally the way my brain works. And there's no way you could teach people into the hyper-focus that I can have or the ability to come up with creative ideas in a way that other people go, well, how did that happen? Because this serendipity engine in my brain is running at you know 4,000 miles an hour. I don't think you can teach that. So, so if you have a diagnosis, you can see it as like, yeah, I need to manage the brakes. I need to tra- train up all the emotional regulation, all the things I'm bad at. But I've got these other things I can use, which allow me to, for instance, Chappie, walk out onto a national tour without a show and still entertain people every night, which just I think is absolutely fucking amazing. Well, I don't think it did my career any good in the long run, but we're not going to dwell on that because we've had too much therapy. <laughs> I mean, the other thing to say is a good, they call it the good news diagnosis because there is so, once you know it, there's so much you can do, whether that's medication or the other stuff we've talked about. It's not like, oh, God you've got pancreatic cancer stage four. It's like you, you've, you've got a slightly different brain. And once you've got it, there's so many wonderful things you can do with it. 
Because it is fun when you know it, that the whole um, journey to understand yourself, it's fun and you give yourself a break and, and you really indulge in your passions and then your passions become hopefully your job. And that's something that is, you know, a, a gift. I have to say the one, one of the things that is, is a massive change for my generation and this new generation is the amount of younger parents who come up to me and say, oh, um, they want to talk about ADHD and because their eight-year-old has ADHD. They're always worried. And I always say the fact that you, the parents, know and understand and accept and you're and are doing everything you can to support your kid rather than say, well, how come you're good at English and you don't pay attention in chemistry? If you just, if you just, that really can crush a child with ADHD. And I get so emotional with joy when parents know and are supportive to their kids and aren't worried about, I don't want my child to have a label. Well, you know, if your child is short-sighted, you'd want them to have that label so they can get glasses that fit, right? So Hmm. same thing. I think I've done all right considering I didn't take my medication this morning. (laughs) It's done amazing. It's been a joy. Yeah. (laughs) If I may give myself a moment to go... I think some of my sentences were in the correct syntax order. Is that a thing? <laughs> I don't know. It is now. Thank you. You said it so clearly, no one's going to question you anyway. Mm. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Chappé. Thank you, guys. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Well, thank you very much to Shappy. Shappy's book is called Scatterbrain and is available now and is fantastic. Mark, your book is as yet unwritten on this topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel there's been enough uh, written on ADHD by people. Uh, you know, I, there's, there's a rash of it. Um, so I think perhaps, don't think the world needs my ADHD, but I know that Adrian Charles is writing one with with my publisher. So I think I think we've, there's enough out there. I don't think I, I can write a poem about ADHD. Go on then. Well, <laughs> not now. <laughs> not not now. I'm going to go and work on it. If you had ADHD, you'd even be able to do that. But you yeah. can't. <laughs> you n- neuronormal. <laughs> Chappie could have done it. Chappie could have written our book by the end of the show. Yeah, she could. Should we get her back? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm mildly gutted we didn't get to her trampoline story, but I guess we can point listeners in the direction of her book uh, for that particular gem. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that I mean that's the big thing I took from the book, and I, I, I did ask her at the time is the the amount of reflection across your life, you know, the amount of events she seems to be looking back on and you know questioning, yeah, you know, and and coming to understand why she reacted a certain way, and also you know ref- the people around you begin to kind of understand and reflect in a, in a similar way. Ed, does it does uh, does my diagnosis make sense of our relationship? Oh, it does. Of course it does, darling. I mean, you know, uh, we had our sneaking suspicions for a long time. But um, no, I think you're definitely a a lot more self-aware than you were and perhaps less self-critical because you understand better what some of those quirks and foibles might be. So, yeah, I think I think you're a much kinder man, actually. Much kinder? Yeah, not necessarily to people you're doing insultancy to. Or us. Or us, you know. I mean, I know what you're like for, like, quote attribution. And there is one which is supposedly attributed to Einstein, which basically says everybody is a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. 
Yes. And I think that's the sort of the 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 liberation that actually diagnosis of some kind of strain of neurodiversity that enables you to get a better handle on who you are uh, and how you interact with the world has got to be a, a good and positive thing. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seemed to me that Shappy it seems a lot happier now than the person she describes being mm. in that book for, for huge amounts of her life. Yes, and she she was at pains to say, and I, and I heard you agreeing with her, Mark, that my ADHD is my own thing to deal with. But I do think societally there is work to be done, and it's where Shappy's book comes in, and it's where um, we mentioned him in the interview, Gabo Mate's book, uh, Scattered Minds, hmm. is a I don't want to say essential read because I'm not fucking Melvin Bragg, but it's a <laughs> it's a really educational book wherever you stand uh, whether you're completely new to this topic whether there's someone in your life you think it might refer to or whether it's yourself because understanding how different brains work is the only way we're going to find ways to get along and as we keep saying on this podcast allow people to thrive and excel and get the best out of everyone and that's the world we want to live in where everybody's full range of skills is allowed to be brought to the table exactly and it's immensely empowering to to read those books and 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 i would hope as much as you know she and you both said we have to understand our own ADHD we have to as a society understand each other better and be compassionate mm, I think we should leave the last word to, uh, on neurodiversity to the comedian Ria Lena who said <laughs> isn't Asperger's a terrible term for a bunch of people who take words literally <laughs> I'm not sure I get that <laughs> Asperger's I wish I think it's Dan Altopolsky's gag. Someone else has a gag saying, I don't know a lot about Asperger's, but if they taste as bad as they sound. (laughs) Is that really? Yeah. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's the sands of time. We have to leave. (laughs) Oh my God, this is great. I feel like this is, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. I feel feel like I'm I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Uh, One of my ambitions in life is to be on that show. And I've just had a little hint of what it would be like to. We can get it sorted. I hope it's. I hope it lived up to your expectations. I mean, I, I have ADHD, so I really am sorry. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You just wandered off halfway through the show. That's a good name for your podcast. No, no, I'm really sorry. I'm going to fucking clue what was going on then. <laughs> yes, the podcast. That, I, don't, I don't think that we that was in the uh, between recording, but there is a, a rumor that Shappy and I might collaborate on a ADHD podcast so yeah that's what we should call it yeah so if it relies on both of you to get your shit together it's never going to happen mm. well you just wait and see if that has provoked any questions for you or uh, there's anything you'd like to say in response to that you can of course get in touch with us and as i always say here's how you do that you can reach us by email at hello at john and the future that's hello at john, J-O-N, and the future noughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. 
And if this podcast has made you want to step out of the internet realm and meet like-minded souls like Mark, Ed and myself, then I invite you to Google People Planet Pine, our official partners on the podcast. If you go to their website, if you Google People Planet Pine or Icosia, People Planet Pine, or whatever your preferred search provider is, you will be directed to meetups where you can join people like us who will get together, make the world a better place and have a pint. So we will be back in just over a week when I think, provided Mark hasn't been lowered into a swimming pool full of sharks by the (laughs) world's richest families. Ed, you're going to Bristol, which I think is safer ground. Well, and then Romania. Okay. So I'm not going to go hanging out with Andrew Tate. No, but I am, we are. Be, we will be in Bristol together. We're doing a, a, a Future Nauts live show without you, John. Just just the Future Nauts. So we're doing. A oh, show. the proper stuff, is it? Yeah. What are we taking seriously all of a sudden, dear? That's right. Yeah. When's that? It's the Blue Earth <laughs> Summit, isn't it? So this, it's whatever the date is, and uh, we'll be there. Can I do another clang? Yes. Guess who my first email from this morning was introducing me to? I think it was Trevor McDonald. It was not. It was Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica. I've just been introduced to him. I like. I love that. What? What does he want to know? What he should be making his drums out of? Uh, well, I think it's about carbon uh, uh, removed touring. Is probably what we're going to talk about. But I don't know. I'll Fascinating you know. as they say. So I've got to go and pick up my daughter from school. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. See you later. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.